Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. It's November 1st, the day after Halloween, and we have a spooky episode for you today. Well, it, it gets kind of spooky towards the end. Uh, well, spooky in an academic sense, so actually not very spooky at all. But anyway, I'm talking today with Dr. Jamie Goodall, an assistant professor of history at Stevenson University in Maryland. Today we're going to talk about her academic and professional background, her research into pirates and their effects on the economy of the Caribbean, life as an assistant professor, and advice for history students looking to enter the job market. Then at the end, we'll talk a little bit about ghosts. Kinda. What is your name and what do you do? Uh, my name is Jamie Goodall, and I'm an assistant professor at Stevenson University. I also work as our assistant archivist at Stevenson. Oh, that's great. So I look forward to hearing more about that. But before we get there, though, can you tell us a little bit about your academic and professional background? Well, my schooling was quite the wandering journey. I did my undergraduate degree at Appalachian State University. Um, I started in 2005, and I did my degree in archaeology with a minor in history. And I thought, you know what, I, I want to be Indiana Jones, and this is going to help me to achieve my goal. Nice, yes. <laughs> and um, I did the archaeological dig that was required of the degree program, and I herniated three discs in my back. Ooh. And I was like, oh, this is literally backbreaking work. So <laughs> I was already too far along. I finished my degree in three years instead of four. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And so um, a professor of mine suggested um, to go into a master's program. And so I applied for a master's program and ended up back at Appalachian State University for a master's degree in public history with a concentration in museum studies. And so did that because I was like, well, that blends my love of history and archaeology, but in an environment where I can be indoors and not digging. Mm -hmm. And did my required internship. And it was supposed to be an eight-week internship. And I show up the first day and the woman says, all right, here's a list of things for your internship. And I was like, all right, cool. So I assumed that that was my list for the day. So I'm working from eight to five and I get done with the list and it's five o'clock. So I go to her and I'm like, all right, well, I finished the list and I'm going to go ahead and go home now. Um, I'll see you tomorrow. And she was like, what do you mean you finished the list? <laughs> and I like, well, I finished the list. And she goes, well, that list was for your whole internship oh. for the entire eight weeks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, she had never had an intern before, so she didn't know quite what to expect. And uh, so basically for eight weeks, she had to keep finding stuff for me to do. And I realized that maybe museum work was not for me. I enjoyed the cataloging. I enjoyed the organizing and that sort of thing. But ultimately, I was really, really bored. <laughs> um, and so I'm talking to one of my mentors and she was like, well, what was the number one thing you liked about the master's program? And it turned out that what I loved the most about it was being a teaching assistant. And so she was like, have you ever considered a PhD program? And I was like, I'm a first generation student. I don't even know what that is. Right. So she explained the process to me and I was like, sure, that sounds easy enough. Why not? <laughs> um, 
I applied to 10 schools and rejection after rejection after rejection. I randomly threw in a couple to schools I had never even considered, including Ohio University and The Ohio State. And ultimately, I, the three schools I got into, I got into The Ohio State, Ohio University, and Auburn. And only Ohio State was going to offer me funding and allow me to study whatever I wanted to study. So I, that's how I ended up at The Ohio State. And while I was there, I worked on a PhD in fields, uh, early America, military history, and Atlantic world, and did my doctoral research on piracy in the Atlantic. Which years were you at Ohio State? I was at Ohio State from 2010 until 2015. Huh. Okay. Yeah, I was there from 2005 to, and I graduated in 2011. So we barely crossed paths. And I think think I know your name from that. <laughs> but um, yeah, we didn't we obviously I don't think we ever actually met. But that's That's quite a coincidence. Bravo. Who did you work with? Uh, I worked with Margaret Newell, primarily. Oh, yeah, my, um, you know, I don't know if they still called it that in your day. But back in my day, it was called grad graduate buddy, which was the person that you were kind of teamed up with when you first came in for orientation and all of that. Mm-hmm. To kind of show you the ropes and all that, my graduate buddy was was also working with uh, Margaret Newell. That's wow, small world. <laughs> that is a small world. Yeah, I worked with Newell primarily. I also worked quite a bit with John Brooke. He was my. I had I had a minor. My major field is in modern U.S. One of my um, minor fields was early U.S. And he was my early U.S. advisor for my uh, generals committee. And then he was also. He was kind of tangentially related to my dissertation committee, but mainly just as a cheerleader more than anything else. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Well, so you you mentioned that your dissertation research was on piracy. You want to go into a little bit more detail about that? Sure. Um, So my advisor pretty much let me research whatever I wanted to. And when I was in my master's program, I had written a paper on whether or not, uh, or Sir Henry Morgan was the second Drake. Um, whether or not the two, Sir Henry Morgan and Sir Francis Drake, whether they paralleled uh, or whether they were uh, like diametrically opposed. And so I found piracy and empire really interesting. And so when we were coming up with a topic, she said, you know, piracy is really in, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of material to work with. So why don't you pursue that? So I did. And um, primarily I look at how piracy helped to shape consumer choices in the Caribbean, primarily by bringing goods to islands that maybe those goods weren't meant to be in, or also by bringing in currency and and an influx of of cash that enabled people who might not have otherwise been able to afford certain goods uh, now all of a sudden could. So not necessarily looking at them like Robin Hood-esque or anything like that, but just that Mm -hmm. by proxy, the goods and services that they brought to these islands was somewhat beneficial to them. Huh. That's interesting. I mean, it, you, you always think about piracy, especially, you know, if they were to grab a treasure ship or something like that, obviously there would be some economic benefit to the pirate who grabs the money, but it's interesting to think about that that money does eventually flow somewhere uh, either to exactly. yeah, goods and services on the mainland or to islands that are, you know, hideouts for the, for the pirates. That's, that's really interesting. So what type of uh, source base did you use for that? Well, primarily I had a lot of difficulty with my source base because of limited funding. So mm-hmm. I did use the 
the National Archives in the UK. Um, I also did get to visit very briefly the archives in Jamaica, Bermuda, the Netherlands, and Paris. Nice. So that was really great experience, but because I had such a short amount of time there, I didn't get to use as many sources from those places as I would have liked, but I did ultimately rely on what are essentially the colonial office records that have been digitized, uh, which were really helpful mm-hmm. since I couldn't travel. That was the uh, kind of the, one of the running jokes in when I was when I was there, and probably at all times is you know I was a modern U.S. specialist, which meant that my exotic research trips were to Washington D.C. But I would talk to people in the in the you know the TA office and all that who would talk about their research trips. Like there was a guy that did Latin America, and so he was always going on research trips to uh, Syria of all places and Argentina, and another guy going to Peru and all that. And I was like, yeah, I, I went to. You know, I went to Southern California to the, the Reagan Presidential Library. It's not quite as glamorous. So, okay. So what are you going to stick with that, with the uh, pirate project? Like, are you, gonna, are you thinking of publishing it or do you think you're going to go anywhere else with it? Um, yeah. So I'm actually working with an editor at LSU Press hmm. to try to get the dissertation turned manuscript published. It's currently under uh, revise and resubmit with them. So uh, I have 18 months to make some major revisions mm-hmm. uh, a couple of books came out as I was finishing my dissertation, so I didn't really get to use much of that material in my uh, manuscript. And it turns out that uh, some of the stuff I was saying is very similar to what they're saying, so I really need to rethink some of the framework and uh, make sure I add those citations in. Yeah, that happened to me with my MA thesis. Um, I had, you know, when I was when I after I graduated from Ohio State with the PhD, I actually decided to go back and look at my old my old MA thesis, and because I, I I liked that topic better than my dissertation topic, so I wanted to go back and, and start on that one again. And so I basically took the thesis and put it into a tried, tr- kind of distilled it down to an article length and submitted it for publication. And then yeah, it turns out about three months after, or maybe it was a few months before, I don't know, before I sent that in, somebody had published an entire book on that exact topic. And so reviewer number two or whoever it was came back and was like, uh, I don't know, <laughs> this has been, this, this, this got done a couple months ago. And it's like, oh man. Yeah. Cause, uh, the reviewer had said, um, that basically I had copied various parts of this one book. And I was like, I finished in 2015. These books came out at the end of 2015. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really copy them. It's just that we apparently were all thinking the same thing. And so um, since their books came out first, yep. uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to be the one to go back and rethink some things. Right. <laughs> and I think as long as I keep my focus on the consumerism aspect, I was a little short on my evidence base for that. So I really need to, to beef that section up. Um, but I think if I do that, then then I should be fine. Great. So you graduated from Ohio State with your PhD. And so then once it was time to go out into, you know, the job market, uh, how did you tackle that when you were after so you're graduating? What was your next step trying to find a job? Well, so I started the job search uh, a full year before I graduated, actually. Good plan. Yeah, I just I wanted to see what was out there. I also had not committed myself 100% to academia. I was open to um I guess they call them alt-ac, mm-hmm. but I was open to careers outside of academia. And so I just would search databases and websites for open positions. And 
USA Jobs was a major one for me um, when thinking about alternative careers. Mm -hmm. And I must have put in over 300 applications mm -hmm. during the process. It was intense. Um, I was putting in a couple applications a week. And it just so happened that there was this position and there was a position at like Florida Southwestern something, I forget the name now, where both of them must have liked my applications and I got through the phone interview process and did on-campus interviews. And I was offered both positions, but I ended up at Stevenson ultimately just because it offered more opportunity for growth. It was a little bit closer to my family. So mm -hmm. I got very lucky because I landed this job while I was still ABD. Oh, very nice. So you get the job as, as ABD. So I imagine your first, you've got that mad scramble to finish the dissertation, obviously, to try to get that out of the way before you kind of fully embrace the new job. What is life like as a instructor or full-time professor at uh, Stevenson? It's chaotic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so at Stevenson, it's a 4-4 load. It's a teaching-focused institution. So I teach four classes every semester. Uh, there can be anywhere from 25 to 30 students per class. So I'm teaching anywhere from 75 to 100 and something students a semester. So I teach a 4-4 load. I'm on six different committees, mm. I think. I serve on our faculty council. And as part of that, you have to chair a subcommittee. So I chair our university advancement committee. I'm uh, chair of our humanities assessment team, which is part of our uh, larger committee that I'm on, the assessment coordinating team. Mm. <laughs> I'm the faculty rep for our policy manual committee. And I also serve on a couple of uh, what are called FMECs, which are our faculty mentoring evaluation committees, uh, where faculty mentor each other for promotion. Okay, cool. And you said earlier that you're also working for the archive? Yeah, so we have a university archive. Our department chair is our head archivist. And basically, uh, I don't do much right now. But uh, anytime he needs assistance, uh, I try to pitch in uh, or send students to him who can assist him with various projects or um, he teaches a class on the intro to archives. So trying to assist him with that. Mm -hmm. You just described what sounds like a very busy schedule between teaching and all of those committee works and all that. So what does a day in the life look like for you as a professor? My day probably looks a little different because my husband is in the military, but I'm usually up between 4.30 and 6 every morning. Oui. It just sort of depends on what time he needs to be, where he needs to be. Then I spend most of the morning getting class materials ready. Um, sometimes I have committee meetings in the mornings. Then uh, I usually teach two classes per day. Um, and then when I get done with that, at some point during each week, I'm holding office hours. And uh, Fridays are always reserved for all sorts of meetings. So most of my Fridays are spent in meetings or in my Stevenson writing group, where a group of faculty members, we get together and just dedicate some time to writing. We read each other's work um, when we can, trying to keep ourselves productive given the heavy teaching load. Well, it's great that you've got the, the uh, community of faculty there to help you out. That must help with keeping on track and keeping your focus on writing, which I'm sure would easily be you know, set aside if you didn't have that type of, um, I don't know, that type of community looking out for you. 
Oh, most definitely. I find it very hard to carve out the time for writing. Yeah. Yeah, I've been, you know, <laughs> graduated in 2011, so I'm coming up on eight years from the uh, dissertation being complete, and I still haven't done anything with it. I keep thinking every couple of months that, oh, it's time to start working on that. But then I open it up, and it's just, oh, God. <laughs> Such starting yeah. starting that process is just so difficult when you've got all kinds of other stuff going on and all kinds of distractions, especially work-related distractions. Yeah, it's very daunting, especially especially because every time I open it back up, I have to go back to the reviewer's comments. And while most of the comments were supremely helpful, and I know that they're going to make the book that much better when I do finish it, some of the comments are really like, you know, a stab in the gut. (laughs) Yeah. It's really hard to like sit down and and reopen that wound every time. Yeah, that I I think that's one of the things that kind of haunts me the most <laughs> every time I think about it. Oh boy, I don't want to, because you know, with the dissertation, it's your baby. You cultivate it for years when you're working in grad school. The idea of handing it off and having someone else tear it apart is just terrifying. Oh yeah. So uh, are there any other uh, research projects that you are managing to squeeze in uh, all the time? Or are you just focusing on the dissertation work? Right now I'm primarily focused on that. Over the summer, I wrote a book for the history press just focused on piracy and privateering in the context of Maryland oh. and Virginia. So Pirates of Chesapeake. That has since been submitted. It is off to production. I'm just waiting now. Um, they said in early November, they'll send me any edits that need to be made. So I'll get that completed in November. And then as long as everything stays on track, that book should come out in the February, March timeframe. Oh, that's very cool. It's a nice little side project. Yeah, I bet. It's it's also a nice way to kind of keep your feet in the, the piracy area, I guess, without uh, getting bogged down in the whole dissertation stuff. That's awesome. As I mentioned before, I mean, the one of the purposes of the, the podcast is to help students to kind of get a sense of the career opportunities that are available to them out there. So how would you, what, what advice do you give to your students when they are about to graduate and it's time for them to go out into the world for the job search, whether it's an undergrad degree or a grad degree or whatever courses you happen to teach, what advice do you give to students when they're ready to go out and uh, try to use the skills they learned as a historian out in the real world, so to speak? Well, one of the major things that I tell them is to make sure they keep an open mind and keep their options open uh, because there are so many different things you can do with a history degree that you wouldn't necessarily think you could do. Um, I mean, we've had students at Stevenson who've gone on to be documentarians um, sure, some of them have gone on to work in museums. Uh, many of them have gone on to grad school, but we've had students go to law school, uh, to med school. So history is a skill set more than anything that can be used in a variety of fields. So I always tell them to keep their options open. And then as far as grad school goes, uh, if they are thinking about graduate school, I always ask them to consider one only go where they're going to pay you to go. So mm-hmm. don't take out any student loans to go to graduate school. They should be paying you through tuition waivers and a TA stipend or some other form of scholarship or fellowship. The other is to, to really think about what kind of career they want, because as you mentioned earlier, the, the job market for academia is not great, to say the least. There are very few spots open for the vast amount of PhDs that are produced each year. Mm-hmm. And so if they're thinking that they want an academic career, um, they have to be prepared for the fact that it might not happen. 
and they have to be prepared to look for postgraduate opportunities and to be thinking about alternatives to academia, the alternatives that they can still get the fulfillment of researching and writing. They don't necessarily have to be in academia to do that if that's the only reason that they want to go into academia. Yeah. And that's one of the themes of, of this podcast and others too, is that there are a lot of options available in museums, archives. Um, and then, like you said, they can get even more creative documentarians and all of that is something that can be a very satisfying and uh, a good career for people. And so there is a lot of really cool opportunities available out there. It is going to take some work to find all of those jobs. There aren't a lot of times they're not heavily advertised. And so sometimes it can be difficult to find them, but they are out there. Yes. And sometimes you have to get into a different job and just kind of, you know, work from within to make it something closer to what you want it to be. So it's kind of hard to tell people exactly how to do that, but that is one way that you can do it. Yeah. Before we move into the recommendations and all that, do you have any final thoughts for what information history students should keep in mind when they're going out on the job market or uh, looking for something to do after graduation? I would say make sure that they get their resumes checked by a professional. Most universities have um, career counseling centers where they have professionals who deal with resumes on a daily basis. And that there's a big difference between a CV for academia and a resume for jobs. Yes. Um, some, some places will ask for whichever, but most places outside of academia are going to ask for a resume. And students need to learn how to highlight their skills and relevant coursework in a way that is effective. Um, and it looks very different from a CV. Yes. Yes, it does. Yeah. That's, that's good advice. That's very good practical advice too, because I get students asking all the time what the difference between a resume and a CV is, and it, they're very different. <laughs> Resumes are, they value conciseness and CVs are all about <laughs> how long can you make them? So it all, it depends yeah. on what you're, uh, what you're trying for. So that's great. So Great. Thank you for all of that. Um, now, before we wrap up here, do you have any recommendations for the people listening in? Anything that you've come across interesting that might be, or anything that you've come across lately that might be interesting to uh, history-minded folks? A recommendation I have would be a book, uh, be, just because I, I've been delving into the book recently. Um, and it's Mark Hanna's book called Pirate Nests and the Rise of the British Empire, 1570 to 1740. Hmm. And it's really interesting because he sort of looks at the rise and fall of piracy from the perspective of the colonial hinterlands, as opposed to just focusing on the sea and the coastline. And so he's looking at essentially the support of pirates uh, in maritime communities, like I said, from the 1570s until uh, the empire's more consolidated in the 1740s. And he sort of takes piracy then there's a traditional narrative that piracy ends in the 17 teens because of a concerted international effort to stamp it out. Um, but he argues that that piracy and unregulated privateering actually exist well into the 1740s. So I think that's a unique aspect uh, of his argument. It's quite a large book, but it's definitely worth it. Oh, that sounds awesome. I'll keep an eye out for that. Sounds good. My recommendation is wherever you are, whatever town you live in, whatever city you're near, if you have the opportunity to do a ghost tour of that town, 
do it. This episode is going to go up in late October, early November. So, you know, it's Halloween. So it's a good time to talk about it, I suppose. But go on the ghost tour, not because you're going to receive, you know, you're not actually going to see any ghosts, obviously, on the on the tour. But it, the, the fun part is learning all the weird quirks about the the town that you're in. Because the ghost, the ghost tours are always based on you know, weird stories that got passed down from person to person and from this shop owner to that, you know, that candidate, that political office holder. And so it's just, it's a great way to learn just kind of weird stories about the town you live in. Usually these things are, are led by usually someone that's in the, in the case of one that I just went on this past weekend, the, the, the tour guide was actually a, um, she's a professional actor who works in town. And so her acting troupe is the one that leads all these, all these tours. And so she, did everything with a dramatic flourish and we all got to carry little lanterns with us and it became very dramatic and it was a um a humid night and it had just rained so we had that weird steam coming up off of the streets uh which just which has made the perfect ambiance for it but you get to hear about weird things in your town like you know there's there's three unmarked graves back behind that tree that you would never see before uh, you would never notice unless this person pointed it out to you and the story behind those three uh, those three unmarked graves. We actually don't know what the story is, but we think that maybe it has to do with this because people have sworn to see ghosts there. And so there's, it's it, the, the historical cause and effect. It isn't always there. <laughs> the logic isn't always there, but it always pre- helps you to find cool new parts of town that you've never seen before. And it helps you to kind of hear neat stories about the town that you've never heard before. And who knows if they're true? Who knows if they're not? I mean, it feels like, Every I've taken these ghost tours in probably three or four towns in, in my life, and every every city has an opera house that burned down and killed a bunch of people when the opera house burned down. And again, you have no idea if it's actually true or not, but uh, you know it gives you something to start with. And so at this point, I'm thinking I might need to just go start digging through some old newspapers and see if there actually was an opera house there to see if it burned down when we were. Uh, on the tour on Saturday night, we the building where this this supposed opera fire happened. There was there's a restaurant down at the bottom, and one of the waitstaff came out just as we were walking by, and the 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 waitress asked us, you know, what are you guys doing? I've seen you I've seen you doing these tours every every couple hours, and so she says, oh, you know, we're doing this this ghost tour. So so if you work in this building, you know, what what, what is have you ever seen anything weird up on the third floor? And the the waitress is like, oh, none of us go to the third floor because it's really freaking creepy, and we all just run out of there whenever we get. And then the tour guide's like, see, I told you, there's something going on there. <laughs> so it's, anyway, it's a it's a fun way to pass the time. It's a fun way to get to know your community, and uh, you know, it's a it's a good reason to get out and all that. So that's my recommendation: is go check out any ghost tours that that, that come by because they're always going to be fun. Um, I went on a ghost tour with a friend of mine in Savannah and it's great because you get to learn not just a little bit more about the town itself and maybe some of its history, true or not. Um, but you get to learn about a lot of the different architecture. Mm -hmm. And I know in Savannah, they were talking about how the, the town is built in levels. And so, um, yeah, you get to learn a lot of really cool stuff. Yeah. You get to see all the weird, um, Usually they'll walk you back like behind the the old buildings and stuff so you can see like there was one that uh, this is in I'm in I'm just outside of Columbus, Ohio, and this was a popular route for the Underground Railroad. And so one of the houses we went around the back and they showed us the door that um, runaway slaves would go through. And of course, there were stories about ghosts of runaway slaves hiding underneath the house and all of that. So it it helps you. It helps to give 
you know, there is some actual legitimate historical stuff mixed in there along with the more sensationalistic stuff. All right. Well, so that's, I think that's our episode for today. So uh, thank you very much for joining me today, Jamie. Oh, thanks for having me. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. For Jamie Goodall, I am Rob Denning. Have a good day.